Welcome to season four of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle. They'll burn out and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. This week, I'm learning from Aaron Hip, a professor who has three adopted children and shares parenting as a team, since both parents work full-time. He is learning to set better boundaries around work, while also trying to recognize that his personality makes him enthusiastic about so many opportunities. He has learned from his wife to better communicate his needs, but he wishes that dads could be more accepted by other mums as equally capable helpers in their kids' lives when dads do step up. He appreciates that the social norm in his workplace is supportive of parents, but he is also aware that without policies codifying that support, a new leader could come in and destroy that supportive culture. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. Hi, I'm Aaron Hip. I'm a faculty member at North Carolina State. This is my 14th year as a faculty member. Married, my wife works full-time out of the house, and we together have three children, all adopted through the foster care system in the U.S. We also have a dog and a cat and 11 koi fish at our house. So there are a lot of bottoms to take care of and a lot of mouths to feed. I love that. Thank you so much. I don't think anyone else has mentioned their koi. We moved in 2019 when we realized that we would most likely be adopting the boys. And our home has an office, which was super during COVID that we had a home with office. And it's like a daylight basement that looks on the backyard. And that's where I am right now. And so I, I can see the fence around the koi fish. The fish came with the house. It's not an investment I would have chosen, but it can be nice. The kids like to feed them. They like to show them off to neighbors. And we've kept 11 of 12 alive for three years. So that's good. Yeah, I'm pretty impressed. I changed rooms in the house to actually create a dedicated office. And my husband bought me a new plant to have. And my response was, not something else to look after. I really don't need it. I'm sorry. Thank you. But, and it's died, right? Because I'm in my office, I'm working. I'm not focusing on whether the plant needs water. And I always think about that too, just in terms of what that says about me and life it's when the plant feels like just another responsibility or another mouth to keep alive. I don't have any bandwidth for that at the moment. Yeah, it's so true. I would love a second dog, but that's one place where I've been able to say no. As much as I want a second dog, I convince myself almost daily looking at Instagram that another thing to take care of is not the smartest idea right now. And to be honest, when we got our second dog, because our older dog was moving on and our daughter was sad about the fact that she would lose him, I thought well, we needed another dog to help that transition. But that actually was part of what led to my burnout too, in terms of a new puppy just made my stress reducing time, which was my exercise time with my older dog became this stressful time. And so that definitely started to lead to my own reveling. So 
Yeah, I would definitely say you don't need another dog. No, I'll just enjoy them on Instagram for now. All right, Erin. So maybe let's talk first about the role you play at work and home and the one that your wife plays as well and how you got there. Sure. The role I play at work, I'm a faculty member. I'm an associate professor. I'm under review right now to be promoted to full professor. I am a graduate faculty member at NC State, which means there's an expectation of research and mentoring graduate students. And so I've got a number of projects, research projects that I work on. I've got graduate students and a postdoc who help with those projects and that I also mentor and I teach. And then there's also a service component. I was thinking of being a faculty member really from the time I was an undergrad. And I was thinking of returning to a smaller liberal arts school and teaching. But through graduate school and having to complete a dissertation, I really began to understand what research is. And I enjoyed research. And then when I applied for positions, I applied for a lot of different positions because my work is pretty interdisciplinary. And I got a position at a really good school that had a heavy research focus and I had good mentors. And so then research really became more heightened in terms of expectations, but also what I enjoyed. And so I do often identify as a researcher with the three-legged stools of academia, kind of service, research, and teaching From a family standpoint, my wife, Pam, we actually met as roommates. And so we have lived together since, um, gosh, October. We're just coming up on 22 years living together. We moved in together in October of 2000. We were doing a volunteer project outside Seattle through AmeriCorps Vista. We were both there and needed a roommate (laughs) to afford to live there. And that's how we met. And then we will have been married 20 years next summer. And yeah, we wanted to have a family. We knew we wanted to have a family. We were unable to conceive. And so we simultaneously looked into the variety of adoptions that are out there, public adoption and private adoption. But we ended up going the public adoption route, which these are children who have been removed from their biological family for a variety of reasons, and they go into foster care. And some of those children are able to go back to their biological family, and some are not able to be reunified, and they are adopted. And so our three children all went through that process. So they had the trauma of being removed from their biological family. Our daughter lived with another foster family prior to us. Our two sons, who were biological brothers, only spent two nights at a different foster family between their biological family and us. And yeah, and we fostered to adoption, which means our daughter, we only fostered for maybe eight or 10 months. Before the adoption was finalized, our sons, it was almost two years. Great. Thanks for that. And so how have you then worked out? You're both full-time professionals and you're both full-time parents. So how do you make that work? Because you and I have had those discussions. Your job is often more than 100% and parenting sharing is more than 50%. So you have a heavy load on you. There is a heavy load. Pam has a master's in public health and she's super bright. She's, I would say, in most regards, more successful than I am and just has incredible work ethic. She is very good about not overworking. She's pretty good with her boundaries. It's something I've had to learn. Her boundaries are amazing. She's pretty impossible to get a hold of while she's at work, which can be super frustrating. If a kid's sick or something, or you've run out of gas, but she's also, when she's home, she's not as addicted to her email and phone as I am. And so I see the pros and cons there. Yeah, I think for us, we've just had to learn how to deal with it and learn our roles and the roles have evolved and changed throughout. So we did, I think, have the benefit of being married about 10 years before becoming parents. And for fostering adoption, you have to go through classes and we go through those classes. And so it was a conversation, but it wasn't like the nine month gestation. And then once you've completed all those classes and you're certified, if a child is available or needs a home, that can happen pretty instantly. And we maybe had three or four days between sitting in a room interviewing to be parents of our oldest and meeting her. 
And so in that way, it can be super instantaneous. I think one thing that really helped kind of redefine our or my work-life balance and our relationship was taking parental leave. One really nice thing with academia, or at least being a tenure track faculty where I have worked, is I was able to take a semester leave with each of our adoptions. And that's been huge. So being able to take that step back, one, to spend time with the child and spend time as a family, but two, it recalibrates that work relationship. And that was that was really important. Pam did not mince words in saying that leading into the adoption before it happened, I was working way too much and she was ready to have that conversation with me that I needed to cut it out or, or she was out. Having that semester leave just really recalibrated our relationship as a couple, as well as my relationship with work. And so I'm very thankful for that opportunity. And it's disappointing that we can't all experience that. And we moved from St. Louis to Raleigh and that changed some dynamics. When we moved here, she did not have a position, but she got a very nice position. Again, she's, I would say, a level above me in a lot of ways. And it's nice in ac academia to have some flexibility. The joke that you get to choose your hours to work, which is true. And so we lean into that a lot. I do think sometimes we lean too hard into that and end up taking on a lot. But at the same time, you know, we have that privilege and affordance and we take advantage of it a lot. Okay. So you don't necessarily have a system where you're saying a week on, week off. Like how do you even start to organize how you separate the work or not? Our organization isn't super prescriptive. We don't have, for better or worse, we don't have a real family calendar or anything like that. We alternate nights putting kids to bed. So with two of us and three, one has two and then the other has one. We alternate those nights. That's really as prescriptive as it goes. The rest is just communication. The rest is just a communication. So Pam just finished a really big project at work and this was our fall break at the university and the kids had yesterday off of school for a teacher work day. And so we all went to the beach here in North Carolina and then Pam was staying on for some respite, some R&R &R for herself. And we were out to dinner Sunday and the kids were just crazy in the restaurant. And we finished dinner and then got in the car, went home, packed their bags, and I brought them back to the house. And it was mostly unspoken. I mean, one, like they were being super challenging, but two, I made the suggestion, perhaps we should just go home, myself and the kids. And Pam didn't push back on that. <laughs> she didn't, no, no, stay, we'll figure it out. And I knew she had this two or three days of respite, but I also knew she wanted us to have a family vacation. But because of work, her respite had gone from a week to two or three days. And I quickly, she didn't have to say it, understood that by us leaving Sunday night, that gave her two full days of respite instead of one full day with the morning and the evening. And a lot of it's communication. Some of it's unspoken. We just watch out for each other and ourselves. We say, I need a minute. Oftentimes, whoever's bringing the kids home will get out of the car and be like, I need to go to the basement and be alone for five or 10 minutes. So it's not prescriptive. We try and ask for what we need. And I would say in general, that has worked. The resentment creeps in once in a blue moon. But again, I think we communicate pretty well to where we don't get to that stage. It's a team effort has to be. And it's good to hear that because one, I love the example of your wife taking a break. And even though you had the planned time together, that you actually also, you know, intuited to notice, okay, I, I can actually give her a little bit more because this family time isn't always the best time for anyone, even for the kids, if they're out of their routine and comfort zone. So I think that's one of the things we have to keep remembering is, is what is quality family time anyway? And if we're all stressed trying to make this thing happen, it's not always the best way. But I love how you really describe how she's strong in her boundaries. I know when COVID was happening and she was working as an epidemiologist, she definitely had to have some very long hours in that time. So definitely there are seasons where we don't necessarily have balance, but if we can have principles that help us return to that balance when we can. 
Yeah, and, and my balance is usually worse, especially with conference travel. I travel more than she does. And so though that travel is work and it's certainly not a vacation, it does make her a single parent for those two, three, four nights. And she's an epidemiologist. So when COVID began, she was working 75, 80 hours and I wasn't teaching that semester. So that was a huge benefit for that spring. So I was able to just focus on the kids. And at the time they were two, three and eight. I couldn't just leave them to a laptop in class. And now they're five, six and 10. So they're a little older, but they're still in that stage of life where the kids are really front and center. So Tell me a little bit then about any experiences of burnout you have had and how you now try and manage burnout. And again, uh, this is so that others can recognize the symptoms in themselves, because often we don't know we're burnt out, but also particularly from that perspective of a dad describing burnout, because I think we definitely see that it's sometimes harder for dads. I found it really hard to admit I was struggling because I saw myself as the super mom, so I didn't want to. But also there are pressures on dads to be the provider and to not admit that they are struggling or experiencing any emotions in some ways. There's that sort of societal expectation. Yeah. And luckily I don't feel the pressures of being the primary breadwinner. So that's nice. But I would say I'm in some stage of burnout right now and it's not the first time. And I think one of the more frustrating things is that it has happened before. And I consider myself a decently intelligent person. And the fact that I continue to make some of the same mistakes is super frustrating that I'm not learning from my past. It's incredibly frustrating. Taking the time to realize the patterns that are leading to where I am. And I think why I say I'm burned out right now, the kids have been really challenging recently. It's again, they're five, six, and 10. This is the one year they're all in elementary school, but we've got a kindergartner experiencing public school and school for the first time and his adjustment to that. But that also means in the morning, we've got for the first time, three kids who need to have backpacks and lunches and everything into the car and leaving together. And so that add some stress. And then the same thing, you get home, you've got dinner, you've got one or two with homework. You want to spend some quality time. I'm returning to the office pretty much every day and Pam is at home and at office. But if we're both returning home with kids at 545, there's no dinner prepared and that can be stressful. And that's really just the hour in the morning and the three hours in the evening that says nothing about the work day. Think burned out at work I've had the fortune of being offered a lot of opportunities. I'm at the stage where I don't necessarily have to apply for grants. There will be opportunities and outreach through the university or the college or the department where, hey, this group wants to partner on an evaluation and it's in my field of expertise and I'm interested. And there's smaller projects in our world. So it might be $50,000, $150,000, one to two year, but it, it funds a graduate student and it funds some interesting work and usually it's community centered. And so I believe in all of that and, and I enjoy that. And I've taken on too much. I've had a really hard time saying no to these opportunities because they seem interesting. I think they provide me and others opportunity. I think they are of benefit with the community. I'm really have turned a lot of my work to working with communities and trying to learn more about working with and not for communities. And anyways, like it's when you layer all of that together, it's just a a lot. And I I'm also realizing through some self-reflection and through some therapy and just conversations with Pam and others that I do have really high expectations of myself and others. I always thought I was a pretty chill, laid back person. And I do think I was for a long time, but I'm not chill and laid back anymore. And that bothers me as well. And all of that just leads to this cycle of 
I don't know if it's self-doubt or self-loathing. I, I just get uncomfortable. And I think when I'm uncomfortable, something that I can lean into is work because I've been successful there and I lean too hard into it. And then I've taken on too much and then home becomes stressful and then work seems in my way and I get resentful towards work. And then that cycle just perpetuates. In terms of what I'm doing, I think conversations like this with you, you and I have had personal and professional conversations. I went for a walk. So as I mentioned, this is our fall break. I went for a walk this morning with a retired colleague from our department just to troubleshoot some with her, specifically about class, but also some work-life balance. I communicate with Pam. I realize when I'm burned out, I've usually let my own health deteriorate whether that's not exercising, maybe drinking too much, leaning into burgers and fries. And a lot of it is self-awareness because people aren't going to call me out on this. I've never had that experience where people have called me out in a positive or negative way. I do go to therapy and that's relatively new and has been helpful. And just try to communicate. I think I'm a pretty open book and I think that's been helpful. I don't mind saying out loud when I'm struggling. I don't mind processing the struggle with other people. And I think in most ways that helps. One last thing there is just the realization that I, I do think I have high expectations of myself and others around me and the work. But I also know that if the work doesn't get done, it's not the end of the world. And so I do remind myself of that when I get really stressed, when I have these feelings of burnout. And yeah, I just remind myself, like, of course, I think it's important. And especially community work is important. And you don't want to let community down. But you know what? If I deliver this in November instead of October, it's not the end of the world. Great, such helpful perspectives and examples. And I think it is really hard to be in these competitive research environments. The expectations around you are high. I think that's the thing too. You can start out as a graduate student being quite laid and not having high expectations, but you do get molded by the environment around you. And then suddenly you wake up and go, oh, I'm not who I thought I was. And the question is, is that person who you were serving you anymore anyway. But if actually that's who you do want to be, because I think that's the thing, we are allowed to grow and develop and change our styles. But if it's not leading to something that you feel comfortable with. And I think that admitting that sort of self-loathing and it is so important too, because that's basically where I got to as well. I just didn't like myself anymore. And yeah, it, tr trying to work out why. But I also hear the pressure of the community work, the service, in the service of students. That's definitely a little bit, again, the expectation in academia is that you do self-sacrifice for the institute, for the communities you serve, for the students you serve. And so I suddenly understand that perspective of not being able to analyze the opportunity costs. So I think that's definitely, again, every yes has costs. So it's like really trying to find that scale and say, yes, I can help students. I can do this. But what is the cost for me, for my family? Well, I realize I say yes very fast. My no's are slow and my yeses are fast. Usually it's because of who I get to work with, whether it's a community or a colleague. Right. So whether it's a community or a colleague, if yourself or some of the friends we have or colleagues we have in common, if they were to reach out, even right now, I know I would say yes, because it's an opportunity to work with someone I like or to work with a community I like. And it would be very challenging, even as topped out as I am right now, to say yes, if a few communities or a few colleagues came to me right now, it would be very challenging, very quick to those yeses. And I'm well-versed in opportunity costs. I listen to a lot of podcasts. A lot of them are behavioral economics. I think about opportunity costs all the time personally, and yet I, I just can't do it for myself. And that's actually an exercise in thinking about this conversation, as well as some of the conversations I've had internally and externally, and specifically with my therapist two weeks ago, the reflection on what is it I want for my kids? 
like what do I see for them to be successful or happy? And that conversation started specifically with academic success for our daughter who is struggling right now. And what is it that, that I want, but also just in general, right? When you think about your partner or your friend or your children, what do you want for them? And so yesterday I wrote down what I wanted for them. And it's the same things I'm certain if I called my parents right now and asked them, they would say the exact same thing that they want from me. And yet I can't be satisfied with that. I can't be satisfied with being happy, being healthy, being content, having my needs met. Like all of those things could easily be true for me right now, but I strive for something beyond that. And it's frustrating to recognize that and not have a fantastic answer for how to get over that. Like, how do I change my personality? How do I get out of my head and get out of my own way? Because I've had the privilege and opportunity to be successful. We have a lovely home. We have a family. We've got all the things that we wanted. My needs are taken care of. I just want to try and stop striving beyond that. That's interesting. And again, just to hear you describe, you want to change yourself, you want to change your personality. And I think I understand that. But I think at the end of the day, it's not about fixing ourselves. We don't need fixed. It's about somehow leaning in and saying, you know what, part of your personality is that you want to do impactful work. And I really admire that too. And I know you've done amazing research. Beating yourself up for wanting more, we do that. We do that for sure. But I definitely understand those struggles and and definitely starting to try and write it out. That's always such a good exercise. Yeah. It's all a process. That's one thing I do know. And that's one place where I don't beat myself up is it's a process. It's a growth. I do think communication in whatever realm, whether writing or therapy or partner or friends or cell phone walks, it's a process and recognizing the awareness, but also that this is a process. There's growth. It's not a linear path. It's not all uphill is super important. And I'm well aware of that. And I would say that awareness keeps me happy. I am in general an optimistic and happy person. We're speaking at an interesting time because I've got some self-loathing going on right at the moment, but I still, I'm smiling right now. I know the broader context and I don't let go of that. And I'm fortunate to keep that broader context in mind. But I also wanted to come back to your framework for saying yes. Everybody says, if it's a hell yes, do it. And of course, if our colleague from Denmark, Jasper, calls, we're all going to say hell yes, because we know it's going to be really interesting, really impactful, totally different perspective to coming from Europe. And so that's what people say. Those are the things you do want to lean into, trying to think about that in terms of the frameworks I've been given, which is hell yes or hell no. So the problem is then, where are the hell no's on your plate that you can then shift off? Because I think it's so important that you can say hell yes, right? To the ones you're excited about. Otherwise, what have you got? You've got a bunch of things that are, you know, interesting, but not your 10 out of 10s. It's about being able to let go of other things so we can do the hell yeses, right? It is. So two thoughts came to my mind. One is, I think, in general, being an excitable, and again, I I think I'm still optimistic person, is I probably have too many hell yeses. And so I'm always game. And I'm certain Pam would say that. I'm the neighborhood gossip. I know everything that's going on. I'm the one that everyone texts or calls for stuff. So that was one thought. And that's very much an inherited trait from my mother. The other thought I had there was I have, I mean, some conversations with you and I've had a life coach or work coach prior as well, is I have listed things out and ranked them in terms of whether it's the top seven or top five that you should really focus on and the rest needs to go away or be less present. I think what I haven't done there is I've done that exercise for myself, but I haven't been great about communicating those results to say a department head, a supervisor, a dean, even today, this conversation, I'm like, why haven't I spoken to my department head about here are my hell yeses. And I think I'm successful with these hell yeses. And here are my, I probably wouldn't say hell no's to my department head about departmental service, but these are the things that do not excite me at all. And therefore, when they don't excite me, I don't attend to them. I don't prioritize them. And so not done as well. And I think even that type of framing, 
I do feel like I've got a department head and a dean right now who would at least support that conversation. They would listen. I don't know exactly what they would say, but I'm certain they would listen and be thoughtful in their response. And definitely that Achilles heel of people knowing that you are always this enthusiastic contributor. And again, that's such an admirable personality trait. But I know it it does get us into trouble because then people know they're going to get a good response. So they tend to ask you more. But I think definitely tracking like how often it is that we're asked to do new things. That for me was definitely instrumental because you don't realize you're constantly feeling the guilt of saying no, but until you realize, okay, 20 times a week, I'm being asked to do new things. No wonder I'm feeling so bad about having to say no all the time. So that helped me. Okay, so talking a little bit more then globally about this struggle we have for dads to be able to be present as dads in their homes, for dads to be able to take paternity leave, for mums to be able to focus on work and share the load at home better. We've talked a lot about the personalities that we are and some of that sort of internal communication. But let's think about it again, leveraging all your community and organizational experience. What is it that organizations and leaders can do to support families in ways that we're not being supported at the moment. And again, from your travels of with colleagues from around the world, what are some of the differences or programs you might have seen elsewhere that you think we could adopt better here? I know it's a difficult question. It's difficult in terms of pointing to specific policies and programs beyond just parental leave. I've got a visiting scholar from Sweden right now, and they have four daughters, and he and his partner both had one year off each, and they could stagger them over the girls' like first 10 years or something like that. And so with four kids within eight or nine years of each other, and each of them getting a year off per child, there was a phase for 16 years where they could effectively, one of them could be home and focus on the children, which is amazing. And again, like being in academia and being at two institutions, when we were adopting our children and being able to take a semester off was fantastic. Here at NC State, I actually had a conversation. I wouldn't even say negotiation because it wasn't a hard, it wasn't a difficult conversation. It was an ask and a yes, that instead of taking one semester off, I dropped down to 50% for the full academic year. And that just worked better for our family because also it wasn't an infant, right? Both boys were walking when they joined our family and being able to do that overlap with foster and adoption. I do think saying foster and adoption that parental leave should extend to families that aren't the traditional family. Those policies are so important just for what they communicate, if anything else, that these are the priorities that we have. And beyond that, I think so much of it is mentoring and culture and modeling. It's, again, I've been super fortunate, especially here at NC State. I've just landed in a department where there are a lot of families. It's a public school and think maybe because of that, both parents usually work. It's a public university and we're not all making tons of money. So seeing that balance and having that communication and knowing that Mike has to leave every day at three for kid pickup and soccer games and that Jason's going every Friday for this and Catherine is taking her fall break off completely because her children are out of school and having that, it's just the standard. It's pretty unspoken. It's been very beneficial to our department. So the The concern there is that's very specific to our dynamics that we have. And so when you change something like leader or department head and they come in and don't have that experience, and we have, we've moved from a department head with two children to a department head with no children. And the culture has not changed yet because I think that's the culture large across our department, but it could. So codifying that, having those policies in places, having programs for support would be much more beneficial. Have this written down so that it's the policy, not just leaning into that this is the norm here and norms can change with leadership changes or role changes. 
those are such great examples as well. And in terms of what both dads and mums then can do more in the home to support each other, you talked about having really clear boundaries and to see how helpful that is, is such a good example. But any other examples, either from your own situation or with other families who it's working with, what is the things that mums in particular can do to help themselves or be supportive of their husbands coming in to help more? I think it's expectations. I think one thing that has benefited Pam and I know I will get frustrated at times, but she doesn't take any shit. She doesn't let me cop out. She lets me do stuff. She doesn't pity the fool. She she doesn't put up with it. And that was a painful lesson to learn. My mom worked as a teacher, but she was certainly the primary parent. My dad's parents, they both worked out of the house, but my grandmother did everything at the home. And then on the other side, my grandmother didn't work. But so I had these models of where the man is the breadwinner and the woman or wife is getting the kids to school and home and taking care of PTA and dinner and vacations and all of that. And that just hasn't been our reality. And Pam just doesn't put up with it. And so she's got the expectation and she level set. This is a partnership. My career is important to me. I understand your career is important to you, but it doesn't mean it should be more important than mine. Being a parent is important to both of us. And we do both those things different. We're different parents. We're different at work. And sometimes that causes conflict between the two of us, but we've been able to work that out. And it's, yeah, I I think a lot of it is expectation. Hold your partners accountable. And obviously that has to start in the beginning. It can be a drastic change if that happens once you have children. Knowing that a career was very important to Pam from the get-go, it was clear. It still frustrates me from time to time, I'll admit. And I'm certain I frustrate her with it from time to time. But I do, I know where I stand and I know I'm important. I know our family is important, but I also know her career is important. And I've been able to, I think, grow in that way and help in that way. It is frustrating to me seeing people without those dynamics, some of those relationships. This is A bit of an aside, but a story that I thought of yesterday that happened this summer, and I did want to share with you in this context. Um, I think it occurred to me last night. So again, Pam's on her kind of R&R two or three nights away right now. And I was going through the kids' folders, like signing what I needed to sign. And they've got a fundraiser coming up. And if I registered them all by nine o'clock last night, they'd be entered in a donut raffle. And so I'm sitting there on my phone at 845, like rapidly doing all this and just thinking about all of the invisible labor. There's so much invisible labor and that has to be communicated. I had no idea as a kid, all the stuff, both my parents did, but certainly my mom. And so one, that invisible labor and how intense it can be with children. But it made me think of, so this summer, our middle child was on the swim team and you have to volunteer. And I'm the more kind of sport forward kids and extracurricular thing. It was summertime. I could get him to swim practice at four. And so I did that. And so I was the one who signed up for which of the swim meets I would volunteer. So I volunteered for the first home swim meet and my older daughter had done swim meet. So I knew what was going on. First swim meet occurs. We happen to be one of the first ones there. So I go and get the sheet that says which kid is swimming, which race and what race number it is. And then I go sit down because his group doesn't swim for like the first 30 minutes. So I'm paying attention, but also having conversations. And I hear four or five races ahead that they're lining up. And so I stand up with this sheet of paper and I walk over to where the six-year-old boys are and there's a group of four moms and they stare at me and they're like, where did you get the start sheet? And I said, oh, I've had it. I've just been waiting. And one of the moms asked for the start sheet and said, I just want to see where my son is. And she looked at it and then took the sheet away and got some other moms. And then I'm in a circle of six moms. And they're like, where has the sheet been? <laughs> and the lady who took it from my hand said, some lady's husband had it this whole time. So I was referred as some lady's husband, which again, I am certain any woman listening to this is referred to as X and X's wife all the time. But she said it to my face, some lady's husband had it. And I was like, I had this under control. Like they're six-year-old boys, no reason to line them up 
15, 20 minutes early, they're going to go crazy. And they just, they shut me out. The circle of moms just completely shut me out because they had no expectation that I could or would want to do it. And I was super upset at first. I mean, I also was like, that's fine. I'll sit down and just enjoy myself. And I don't have anything to do here. And I let them take it. Part of me wanted to push back. And I just watched it for the rest of the time. It was all moms doing all of this. And I was often, even at swim practice, it was 80% moms, 20% dads. And there just was no expectation that I was going to do it or do it well or knew what I was doing. Part of me wanted to say I'm perfectly capable of lining up 12 six-year-old boys and walking them to the other side of the pool. But I was just like, whatever. And I just sat down, read my book. And that is such a difficult situation because again, as you say, the norm is unfortunately that it is mums. And I know you've also been on the receiving end of being praised because you are the only dad there. And you've described that to me before your wife being judged for not being there as well. So there's that other side of it. But yeah, that's just such a shame because as mums, we do, we want the dads to be more involved. I want the dads to be involved as role models for the boys and the girls, right? So that the girls see it doesn't always have to be girls leading the volunteering. And so, yeah, that's just such a shame. And I think that's a great example for us all to hear and think about how we treat each other in all those situations too. Obviously, every family is different and different expectations and dynamics, but it can be frustrating to see those dynamics play out. And they feel very uneven from my outside viewpoint. It can be frustrating. Everything should be more even and even looks different. As we said, I'm solo parenting right now. And so right now it is all me, but I also was at a conference two or three weeks ago and gone for four days and it was all Pam then. And it's communicating, working together, and it's being a team. And that's so much of it is being a team and tapping out. I will say Pam has gotten a lot better about asking for the tap out. And in part because I was getting super frustrated that I was trying to take care of my own self and burnout and awareness, but also trying to be aware of when she needed a tap out because she would not ask for the tap out, which is probably a strong working mom characteristic. And it was just, it shouldn't be on me to have to one, be aware of my own mental health and burnout, but two, also be aware of yours. You have to communicate with me when you need it. And she does. I'll say if the kids are going crazy in the van on the way home and she's bringing them home, she'll walk in the door and she like, I will see you in 15 minutes. And she just walks away. And there's times where I'm just like, but I get it. Like I've been there. I think so much of it is just empathy and realizing like, there's no reason that should all be on her or that it should all be on me and just that realization that it's a team and it's not 50 50 every day but we make it balance and work out over time exactly and i think that is so important because again you can't always be looking out for other people's needs especially when you're struggling to meet your own the more we can vocalize and ask for what we need really clearly what i can see is how much it makes your job and life easier when someone else is communicating those things to you clearly I can see that makes a big difference and again some days you can't tap out some days both of you are spent and the kids are still (laughs) needing something but again even in those situations my husband and I recognizing and saying to each other I know you're stressed I know I'm stressed okay deep breath let's go when I talk about expectations and working with a therapist letting go of some of that and accepting letting kids have iPads and eat mac and cheese for dinner and, or go through the drive-through because you just can't stomach doing dishes tonight. We definitely do those things where it's just, we can't fight about homework tonight. We can't worry with dishes. So we're just not going to worry that homework's not getting done. It's fine that we're all eating a cheeseburger and French fry tonight. It's just, we're taking care of our family. My folks are about five and a half hours away Pam's mother is there in California. So she's on the other side. And so we do feel alone. It's not the right word, but we don't always have a team of support. And so there are certainly evenings where 
yeah, it's fast food and iPads just so we can all still like each other and get up in the morning. Exactly, exactly. And I think, again, COVID in some way helped us see those expectations and realize all these extracurricular activities 24-7. It's a question of what does quality time look for our family and how are we serving that? But maybe that helps me transition a little bit in terms of you actually said you spent time yesterday thinking about what you wanted for your kids And maybe that life hasn't necessarily changed than what your parents wanted for you, as you said, but what sort of future vision do you have and how do we get there? It can be specifically for your kids, but just in terms of more, I feel like if we have a vision of where we want to go, then we can reverse engineer to get there better at a social and organizational and family way. I 100% agree. And something I'm actively working on is what is it I want me probably more so than globally, but what is it I want and how do I reverse engineer that? Even in terms of this morning, I had the walk with the retired colleague in terms of my romanticized version of retirement. What is that? And then how do I reverse engineer my life now? Like, why can't the things that I envision my retirement life, what is it I'm envisioning and how do I make some of that part of my life now. And so that that is something I actively think about. So in terms of visioning a future, because we're talking about futures where there's equality and equity, and we haven't necessarily even spoken about the challenges that you have as Caucasian white parents, and your wife is Asian, and your children are African American. Like, what is the future you want for them and in that context too? Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast series for sure. Just again, I am the role model of continual growth and understanding for myself and where I stand as a white man. And as you mentioned, my wife's Asian and my three kids are black or African-American. And so I'm constantly learning and constantly experiencing new things, especially as they grow, being five, six and 10, having new experiences, even this weekend at the beach walking around some neighborhoods and just feeling uncomfortable. And we're beginning to have those conversations as a family and have to be really thoughtful about where we're going and what we're doing and how we are perceived. Because day in, day out, it's just you and your kids, right? But you've got to be super thoughtful with what you're doing and where you're going and what may or may not happen and communicate that with your kids. In terms of the future, my pipe dream is really just presence and patience. The thing I want to work on, but I think global is presence with what you're doing. The presence with spending an hour with you, a presence with a research project, the presence with your partner on a date night, the presence with your children, the ability to be focused on that singular task without the distractions is so important to having a solid conversation, to have a solid experience, to put your best work there. And it's extremely challenging as a working parent, because when I'm with the kids, I'm often concerned or thinking about work. This morning, I looked at an email while I was getting ready and the kids were downstairs and it was a simple email. It didn't really agitate me too much, but I started thinking about it. And then the kids started fighting. And because I was thinking about work, my presence and patience for whatever shenanigans they were up to wasn't there. And if I hadn't just swiped twice on my phone to look at an email, it would have been more present. And the same thing at work. I think it's hard to keep some of the family distractions away from work, but also competing demands at work and focusing own one thing at a time, I think is huge. I think having that presence and patience right now are two things that I think are just super important. Great. So it's a tough conversation. So let's try and lighten it up as we head into the end here. And the stereotype is the dad is the laid back fun one. I'm clearly going there with my favorite dad joke question at the end. So I'm creating a whole stereotype of that's what dads are only known for. I should be like, what's your favorite dad recipe instead? There you go. You should. I can think of that. 
Actually, my favorite meal as a kid growing up, Pam hates, so we never have it. And so I, I've never recreated it even for the kids. So. What is it though? Oh, it was just called chicken wrapped in bacon. It was something my mom made. I loved it as a kid and Pam thinks it's terrible. So we never have it. Yeah, we never had it. I do like to cook. I like to grill. Again, that's another place where we split a lot. So that helps. Dad jokes. Pam and I are both funny. I think we do a lot of just dad jokes around the house. It's hard to say that there's one favorite, but I did want to know when you were going to ask this question. There's a social media account that I really like and would recommend. It's called Fit Dad CEO. So I highly recommend it. I think he's on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, but he posts dad jokes all the time and they're really funny. So the one I was thinking about was, did you hear about the joke that Autumn told me at the party? And the son said, eh, only summer funny. So that's what the son says. And then Fit Dad CEO says, no dummy, I didn't fall for it. So he posts about one a day and they're topical, they're funny. And then looking at the comments, there's all sorts of funny ones in there. So did you hear about the joke that Autumn told me? Eh, some are funny or yeah, I didn't fall for it. So I thought that one was seasonal. I love it. Love it. Perfect. Perfect. Seasonal for now. We're going to be publishing this in the spring. I tried really hard. As I said, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I hear them talk about trying to make things evergreen. And so I, I tried not to too much, but Fit Dad CEO also wears a shirt that I really love that says it's not a dad bod. It's a father figure. Yeah. And so I, I really like that one. Yeah. So not a dad bod, a father figure. That's nice. That's nice. I think my husband would like that one too. <laughs> okay. I so appreciate your time today. If you've got any last words of wisdom to wrap up with, that would be great. A lot of this comes to communication. That's part of why I was delighted that you reached out and happy to talk with you. Communicating with you and having these conversations have been huge for me. They've also given me the confidence to have further and more challenging conversations with Pam so that we're on the same page because the resentment is real. And I, I think communicating with each other so you know where you stand is super important. And that's part of that presence is you're letting your partner and your family know where you are and help you be there. I, I think raising a family, there's really nothing more important for those who've chosen or, or have families is working together to be as best a family union as you can be, whatever that family unit looks like. And so just communicate and grow, just be open to growth. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction. Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress? In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The peer learning collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. 
In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12 week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, 
identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Take control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it, you're all. Feel the power Everything that you need